danger of deception. I kind of struggled, you know, where to teach this morning. Last week was kind of a building dedication of sorts and, and a special message there. And, uh, and then, you know, then we're kind of starting fresh in this new building and this new season and was tempted to just go on and hop to revelation. We're going to be getting into revelation soon. So be excited for that prayerful for that. Um, and I was tempted to just like, man, let's dive in. Let's get into those seven churches and those letters there. That'd be really good for us in this new season as a church. Um, but you know, I don't want to neglect any portion of the scripture. You know, one thing about Calvary is it has a great heritage is that we do walk through the word and we get through some of the tough chapters that might normally be skipped over. And, and I don't know when the next time we'd be in second John would be probably about 40 years if we're walking through the word or something like that. So, so I think there is though a good message for us here in the latter part of this one chaptered book. And that would be that there's a danger of deception. It's the same danger that was there 2000 years ago with the apostle John as there is today in 2019, even on this corner lot, uh, here of this, uh, this fine looking historical building, you know, and the people therein that there's a danger of deception. Now I heard a great story that I don't believe I'd ever heard before that according to the historian Irenaeus, Polycarp, who was the first bishop of Smyrna, records in his writings an incident that took place in the bathhouses of Ephesus. Lots of bathhouses back in the day. Public bathing. Not many places to get a good hot shower or a bath, so you did it publicly. It was cool back then, don't worry. But Polycarp writes... At a particular moment in the day, the apostle John cried out, let us flee for Serenthus, the enemy of truth is inside. And so everyone's just rub-a-dub scrubbing, you know, three men in a tub and uh, John, the revelator busts out everyone out. Like the roof is going to cave in. Now, many of you almost didn't come today because you were afraid this roof would cave in. And it might. The inspection wasn't too good on this roof. But, of course, if it were to fall on you, it'd have to fall on me, right? Chief of sinners right here at the pulpit this morning. And so so John, the revelator, cries out in the bathhouse, Everyone out! The roof's going to fall! Serenthus! The enemy of the truth is inside. Now, Serenthus was a first century heretic. And according to Polycarp, he found himself in this public bathing house there in Ephesus at the same time as John, who's the writer of our letter, a guy who cares about truth. And if it's an accurate statement, then it serves as a way to understand John's care and passion that we call out those who are deceiving people and leading them to hell. Now, many of us have dealt with various uh, cleaning products or chemicals and substances in our industries and in our employment. And we well know the symbol or the logo on the labels that is a skull and crossbones, right? We know that symbol. It means death. And if you were to, you were to look up the definition of this logo, the skull and crossbones, it's pretty straightforward. It says this symbol means something is poison. Poison can make you or your friends very sick. 
You must be very careful to never play with anything with this symbol on it. And there are many teachings out there, many spiritual positions that are being proclaimed from what would seem established posts or pulpits. And you ought to slap that skull and crossbones right on it. You ought to slap the hazmat symbol right on it. Because messing around with the false doctrines, it'll lead people to hell. It'll lead people to hell. It will obscure the glory of Christ. Al Mohler says, where truth is denied, only therapy remains. And so as a church, we want to major in the truth. We want to expound the truth. We want to proclaim the truth because if we don't, we all going to go crazy. We all going to have a therapist in Ben that we're going to be traveling to every week, you know, because this is just too much, this life. And then you add to that every other type of, of relative truth that people have. And, and it's a conglomeration or a kaleidoscope of deception. And so the Apostle John might take it one step deeper than Al Mohler and say where truth is even adjusted, heresy will reign. Now, in the letter here, as we start at verse 7 and go towards the end, there's these deceivers and you got to watch out for them. Don't even let them into your house. He goes so far as to call them antichrists. Like, whoa, John's not concerned with what we would call peripheral issues here. He's not concerned with secondary issues or we like to call them here at Calvary gray areas. You know, they're things that, you know, in history, good Bible believing, Jesus loving, Christ proclaiming Christians kind of fall on various sides of, of understanding on some of those points, you know, but then there's what's Orthodox Christianity. It's what the apostles proclaimed, having heard it right from Jesus, they wrote it down and the church fathers carried it out and helped us to be able to keep those with the different creeds that were written from the different councils, councils that were had to help combat heresies that would arise. And so these orthodox principles that are central to the faith and central to Christianity, these are the things that John is concerned about. John's not concerned about whether we wear a collared shirt to church and penny loafers or whether we wear a hat, you know, with shorts and flip flop. That's not the problem here. Okay. Uh, he's not even concerned with things here regarding, you know, whether, you know, you speak in tongues or not, or whether you believe, you know, that the rapture is going to happen, um, pre tribulation or post tribulation time. You know, that's, that's not even what he's getting on about here. The central figure, the central issue that John is concerned with is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? And he was dealing with a group of people of his day, <clears throat> a theology of the day, that was an early form of Gnosticism. An early form of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is actually an ancient form of what we have today that is similar to Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay, And Gnosticism basically said that all matter is evil. And everything spirit is good. So there's no way that the Christ, the Messiah, 
or God could come in the flesh and dwell among us and be fully man and fully God at the same time. And so they would create all kinds of other algorithms and formulas to try to help explain away the deity and the humanity of Christ, that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Okay, and so that's just a, a, a snapshot in a nutshell of what Gnosticism was, and it bleeds into many of those, um, you know, modern day Gnostics as well. One man said, the test for if a person is a genuine Christian and not a counterfeit is what does this person believe about Jesus? Does this professing Christian have a view of Jesus that is true to the revelation that is given to us in all of the Bible? So is this person's view of Jesus biblical? And I'm very thankful for the men that discipled me in my youth. I remember even in high school saying, what does this faith, when it all boils down, what do they believe about Jesus? And not to offend you, but what we would say among Orthodox Christians is that anything that goes above the line of what the Bible says about who Jesus is or below the line of what the Bible says Jesus is, is what we call a cult. All right. Now, the world has all sorts of things out there that they throw the word cult around with. You know, it's a young horse that runs so wild and free across the field. Okay. Some of you caught that. Some of you are like, yeah, I think so. Okay. Cult versus cult here. Okay. Um, or, you know, it's, it's the group that, you know, is looking for hail bop comet and they got their pink Nikes on, you know, and, or it's the group that, you know, flies down to Guyana and drinks the Kool-Aid and, you know, that's a cult. Now that's true, but the deceiving thing is, is that there's not always Kool-Aid mustaches involved. Okay. And there's not always purple Nikes involved. Sometimes it looks so similar to us. And so how do we know if something is a cult? Who do they say Jesus is? At the end of the day, are they trying to add or subtract from Jesus's full deity as God creator, worthy to be worshiped, absolutely spotless and sinless? Or are they trying to take away from that in any way, shape or form? One of the cults that John was dealing with were the docetists from the Greek word meaning to appear. The docetists or docetism said Jesus only appeared to be human or to have a physical body. In a sense, when he walked on the seashore, he didn't leave any footprints. You know, he only appeared to have that human body. And so the concern of John ought to be the same concern of us in 2019. Another form of heresy was led by Serinthus, who was in the bathhouse with John at that time. And it said that the Christ spirit came upon the man Jesus at the moment of his baptism, but just before the crucifixion, that Christ spirit left or some sort of divine emanation left so that Jesus could die because God 
can't die and flesh is evil and, and all of that. And I remember my grandpa, my dear old grandpa Buck, who pretty much refused his whole life to be a part of a church and spent his whole time and life savings from a giant cattle ranch supporting the televangelist uh, preachers until uh, he died at the age of 96. And I remember sitting with him in his living room and he was telling me that, you know, he learned from the TBN preacher that Jesus uh, couldn't have been fully God uh, because God can't die. So that God's spirit must have left before the cross and then come back on him at the resurrection. And so it, it seems like, oh, yeah, how can God die? It's like, hey, don't worry about that stuff. Just read your Bible, people. Okay, dig into the Bible. Let's look at the historical beliefs of the Christian faith or what we would call orthodoxy. And so John knew that, remember when we were singing today, I was like, we're singing Christology, right? Uh, that's theology about Christ. And John knew that Christology was the central thing. It was the heart of Christianity, And that if you're wrong on who Christ is, then you're going to be wrong about everything else. Matters of faith, matters of life, matters of worship, matters of things that we care about, matters of salvation, matters of heaven and matters of hell. And so John wants us, he warns us to be on the lookout for anything that challenges the full deity Okay, so these are the, so these are the central things. Okay, you might have up in your grill right now all kinds of peripheral things. Peripheral, peripheral. Thanks, peripheral. I know. I looked at Casey, fellow homeschool mom. Okay, I'll remember that when I'm teaching Lainey this week. Okay, peripheral. Like I said, these aren't outside issues. These are central things. Christ's full deity. His true and perfect humanity, gospel of John, John deals with the deity, deity of Jesus, gospel of Luke, Luke, the physician deals with the humanity of Jesus, Jesus's sinless life, his completed work of Jesus on the cross, the atonement of the blood and him being the son of the father. And so having a little bit of that under our belt as the introduction here, let's look at verse seven. It says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. And so the word deceiver here speaks of someone who is misleading. I like what the Phillips translation tells us for the world is becoming full of imposters, men who will not admit that Jesus, the Christ really became man. And what Phillips does is so great because it helps us know the issue there. Men who will not admit it. They will not admit that Jesus, the Christ really became a man. And Philip says that that's an imposter, imposter, deceiver, misleading. You know, these days in the days of graphic tees, this isn't a guy walking around with liar written on his shirt, just full on lie. I mean, how would you even interact with someone whose shirt said liar on it? Like, I think I'm going to test this out. 
Who's the president? Not my president. Okay, I'm not going to talk about that. Um, what should I talk about? You know, I'm a liar. I'm a huge fat liar. Going to deceive you is on his shirt. All right. This is not how the liars work unless they're trying to trick you. So either way, it's good to have your, uh, your radar, your antenna up. Most often, nobody knows that these guys are deceivers. I've heard many different times from different spheres, and I'm, I barely knew anybody in the FBI, but I've heard that the FBI investigators, when they are trying to catch counterfeits, the way that they train them to recognize a false bill is to just immerse them in the feeling and the texture and, oh yes, the smell of the real bills. They just need to know the true ones so well, inside out, up in the light. Does it have the strip? What's it smell like? What's the texture? What's the fiber? I want to know the truth so that when any form or various type of counterfeit comes across, nailed and flagged. And so that's what we want to dive into as a church. We want to not spend so much time looking at every other type of falsity out there. That There's billions and trillions and gazillions. We want to know the truth so that when the false comes, our radars will go up. How many cults use Bibles in their advertising? I remember as a kid, um, back when commercials were a thing, I don't really watch them anymore. Um, do you remember the Mormon commercials from back in the day, like in the eighties? I mean, I remember as a kid, grandma with her satellite TV right after we flipped from that preacher to the, you know, Discovery Channel or whatever, the Mormon commercial, and it's got this shining light coming down on this brown book, and it's like, you know, if you email us or whatever it was back then, call, I guess it was calling, if you call us, we'll give you this shiny new Bible, but forget about that. Check this bad boy out, the Book of Mormon. And to understand that, you'll need this. In fact, as you read this, you'll realize that's not even relevant anymore. So they use Bibles in their advertising. I remember as a kid being like, let's call that number, Mom. I need a new Bible. I've got my Choose Your Own Adventure Bible, you know, and that thing's all messed up. You know, I, I need the new Bible. Come on. No, son, there's something about that that's a little bit off. And do you also remember, you know, driving through a bigger city and seeing a Christian science reading room has the word Christian has a Bible and neon sign on the window. Let's pull on in there. It's how they get you because it's deceptive. It's misleading. But when you get down to the brass tacks, all of these different would say Jesus is something other than fully God, fully man, fully the atoner for the sins of the world, fully worthy of worship, fully creator God, eternal from the beginning, united with the Father, united with the Spirit, yet distinctly different as a person. Okay? Now these things are confusing and maybe hard to get as young Christians, but it's absolutely essential to begin to grow in the knowledge of who Jesus is. So what are the characteristics of these smooth talking charlatans? Well, let's check it out. Many deceivers have gone out into the world and what do they do? They do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. 
Okay. Now, so John is specifically dealing with the Gnostics who would say all matter is evil. Therefore, Christ, the, the anointed, the Messiah could not come in the flesh because there's no way all flesh is evil. And so they deny the Christ child. They, dec- they, they deny the Christ coming in the flesh. It says that, uh, this is a deceiver. So there's the word deceiver again and an antichrist. Now it's okay to, to use that word antichrist. Sometimes we think of it as like 1990s websites with neon, you know, neon green letters and some strange guy with a, a webcam, you know, just talking about antichrist and talking about beasts and this and that and the other, you know, and, and, and yet biblically there's, this is really something to be on the lookout for. Like not only the Antichrist, and that's a revelation study for us for later, but Antichrists. The word Antichrist means in place of Christ. It's not so much anti-gun, you know. It's subtler than that. It's, I'm going to take the place of, I'm going to take the place of Jesus. And that's what it tries to do. It tries to offer you a counterfeit or something else. It's a deceiver and an antichrist to say that Jesus Christ has not come in the flesh. And so this is the heart of all false teaching. It will be a defective view of Jesus. They will deny that the man Jesus of Nazareth and the eternal son of God are one in the same person might not mean a lot to us right now or to you because of where you are in your baby steps of faith. But it's the issue that John is teaching about. And it's something that we need to grow in as well. It's so subtle how they deceive. This isn't to pick on Christian scientists or Jehovah's witnesses or Mormons. There's a billion false teachings out there. And, and so often they could even creep up in a Calvary chapel. And so we want to be on our guard, but listen to this. Many of us would know that, that the Mormon faith is not the same as the Orthodox Christian faith. But if you were to have a missionary come to your door and visit with you and discuss with you and leave a brochure or a pamphlet with a website and they encourage you, go check out our statement of faith after the discussion that you just had with them, where you tried to share the gospel, you would go to their statement of faith and you would read this. This is taken from their website. We believe in God, the eternal father and his son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy ghost. Woo! Welcome brother. Did anybody catch the subtlety in that? You have to have eyes to see it. You have to know the true bill. Because the emphasis within that statement is we believe in God, the eternal father. But his son, Christ Jesus, is not eternal. His son, Christ Jesus, is a created being. An angel. And it's the same with the Holy Ghost, not eternal. And so once you get into that and once you recognize that everything else within that faith falls apart, everything from understanding the attributes of God and being able to worship him in spirit and in truth, everything that has to do with the atonement of Christ and how his blood alone could 
play, could be the propitiation for our sins and wash our sins away because only God is holy and sinless and able to do such things. It has to do with our worship and our eternal worship because he is the lamb that was slain from the beginning of the earth and he is worthy of all worship. He's a worshiped God, fully God, fully man. An ordinary man, they would say, was invaded by divinity just for a time, and then it departed. They would teach, and this speaks of many of the cults, that the Christ came into the flesh of Jesus. But the Bible teaches that Jesus was the Christ come in the flesh. And studying the Bible, Genesis through Revelation, it's not hard to miss. It's it's heroic. Even the Jews believed, even a non-Christian Jew, Jacob Neusner said, Jews would understand from a reading of the Old Testament that at some point in human history, God would come in the flesh. And Jesus is the fulfillment of those prophecies. Now, all of this might be hard to understand. It's orthodoxy. Listen to what Alistair Begg said. God himself in the person of the eternal son comes in time and space in order to reveal God in a revelation of all that God is capable in humanity and to provide reconciliation to that God for those who are sinners. The whole gospel, the whole plan of salvation, the whole atonement for sin is wrapped up in God coming in the flesh. You guys remember the Christmas carol? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. You guys know that one, right? Christmas time. They wouldn't be able to sing that. They don't believe that. What about what we sang here in Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe? It's the gospel. You read Psalm chapter 40, which is then quoted in Hebrews chapter 10. It's a Christmas carol. And it says flesh and, uh, it says a uh, sacrifice and offerings you did not desire. God was tired with the, the smoke of the bulls and of goats and the hypocrisy of the people, uh, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. But the psalmist says, but a body you prepared for me, it is written in the fullness of the book. I delight to do your will, O God. And it's believed, did you know this, from Psalm chapter 40 or Hebrews chapter 10, that those were Jesus' last words before he, you know, whatever, was encapsulated and then shot through space and time into Mary's womb, you know, you know. And the hypostatic union took place and then boom, never before in human history, fully God, fully man. You were no more bulls and goats, man. We need some blood that is going to not only cover over sin, but wipe out sin, wash it away. Forget it. Far as the East is from the West. That's how far you've removed my transgressions from me. 
I delight to do your will, O oh God. I'm going to come in, into earth and I'm going to obey. I'm going to fulfill the law and the prophets, but I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to be put on trial. I'm going to be accused and I'm going to be murdered. But in that murder, I'm going to be a substitute. I'm going to be a sacrifice for the sins of the world. And my precious spotless blood, that precious spotless blood that was prophesied to be of that spotless lamb that would be slain at the temple will atone for the sins of the whole world. Do you guys see the story? This is the meta narrative of scripture. This is Genesis through revelation going on. And so no wonder Satan would want to come in and just, and you get people that they're no longer in fellowship and they're away from the teachings of the scripture. And they begin to maybe even still have a Bible on their shelf, maybe even read it for themselves in the morning, but they don't know how to interpret the Bible. They begin to ask questions and hear things from people that are outside and outside and outside. And pretty soon they are deceived. And it's hard to come back from that. It takes humility to come back from that. How wonderful it was to uh, be closing up our last building one day and some firefighters, they would always walk by. We were close to the fire department and they'd always walk by to go get Subway lunch as I was closing up. And this young girl and this young guy came in wearing the firefighter outfit. It was this young girl named Willow, young girl named Willow. And she said, I was raised in the Mormon church. And I started reading my Bible and recognizing there's a big difference between what I was being taught in my youth and what I'm reading in the scripture. And as I dove into the historicity of the Bible, I dove into the Orthodox faith of Christianity and I realized these two do just, just do not jive. And so I've become a new Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. And I hope on my internship to be able to join you at Calvary. But this isn't about bashing one faith or another because this could be us. That's why we're learning this in our new building. We could go all sorts of weird ways and wacky ways, but we've got to stay tethered to the line and the ground of the word of God. Take heed. Watch out for deceivers. Watch out for the misleading these guys are deceivers and antichrists. We listen to what Matthew Henry said back in the 1500s. I like it. He said, strange that after such evidence, any should deny that the Lord Jesus is the son of God and the savior of the world. The aggravation of the case, such a one is a deceiver and an antichrist. You see, that's pretty bold, right? To call someone an antichrist. Try it on someone this week. We'll see how it goes, right? (laughs) Try it on your spouse. It'll go just great. Okay. All right. Like this is boldness of John and he's going to say it a couple times. He's going to tell you how to, what to, how to deal with these individuals. Call them out. Henry goes on to say, he deludes souls and undermines the glory and the kingdom of the Lord Christ. He must be an imposter, a willful deceiver. After all the light that has been afforded and all the evidence that Christ has given concerning himself and the attestation God has given concerning his son, and he is a willful opposer of the person and honor and interest of the Lord Christ, and as such shall be reckoned with when the Lord Christ comes again. 
Let us not think it strange that there are deceivers and, and, and opposers of the Lord Christ's name and dignity now. For there were such of old, even in the apostles' time. John does not mince his words, does he? Good to be full of love. Good to be full of zeal. And I remember some Mormon missionaries coming to my door a couple years ago and and I just opened up by sharing, you know, um, you know, I have a problem with you believing that that God is just a God of his own planet and that, you know, one day I'll be like him and I'll have my own planet or groups of planets and I'll populate it and have my own set of wives and this, that. And, and, uh, and they're like, no, we don't believe that. We don't, we don't believe that man. And I was like, am I wrong in saying that even at the entrance of Brigham Young university, it, it says as God once was, so are we. And as God is, so shall we become? Yeah, yeah, that, that's on there. I'm like, what do you think that means? Uh, yeah, it, it means that, you know, we're going to be gods, you know? I'm like, well, why did you say that? You're being deceptive. You know that that's, that's a little burr under my saddle, and so you're just going to get rid of that and try to, you know, lead me along in some other stuff that it might tickle my ears and then, and then get me with it. Like, no, that's deceiving. And so as they come to our doors and it's various forms, it's so many, we're going to Nepal, we're sharing with Buddhists, we're all over the place. We're, we're, we're dealing with self-righteous people. This just as bad. Okay. Dealing with people who don't value the scriptures. Marshall says there can be no stronger condemnation of error and deceit in all of Christian doctrine than John the Revelator calling them Antichrist. Plummer writes, to advance beyond Christ is not progress, but apostasy. Let's look at verse 8. We're only in verse (laughs) 8. I was thinking the same thing. (laughs) Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for but that we may receive a full reward. Watch yourselves is what he's saying is really, it's in the present tense imperative and it means to continually be on guard. It comes across as a strong warning for us. Watch yourselves. Don't let anyone take what you've worked so hard for. We want that full reward. Let's continue steadfastly to the end. Look at revelation three eleven. Where Jesus says, behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. Hold fast to what we have. Continue on in the faith. Vance Havner once said, faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. It's a whole lot of those. Okay. Watch yourselves. Let's finish this race well. Amen. Man, I want to be the 98-year-old guy that's just like, come here, come closer, closer, too close. Go back a little bit, okay. Oh, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust, closer, oh yeah. (laughs) I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. <laughs> that, 
that's how I want to go out right there. Just like declaring Jesus. Hold, I mean, you know, various ways it could go down. I'm hoping for painless is what I'm going for. Verse nine, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the father and the son. So can we like circle this verse in our Bibles and let's just not give credence to the false teachers. Can we just be like, okay, what do they believe about Jesus? If they have the son, they have the father. They deny the son. They deny biblical sonship deity of Jesus and all that we've talked about this morning, they don't have the father concerning the Trinity concerning the deity of Jesus. It's all or nothing. And John lets us know it. He's an apostle. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles. We got to hear him out this morning. You guys stop giving credence to whether they seem like good people or they seem sincere because they are sincerely wrong. Do we love them? Yes. Do we plead with them? Yes. Do we seek to win them to the truth? Yes. But do not say amen to what they say. Do not affirm the things that they speak concerning their doctrine. They do not have the father. John is clear here. There's no ambiguity. And will you flip over one book to me to first John chapter two? Verse 18, John has some similar themes in his three letters. Get your reading glasses on. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us for if they've been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were with us. And so when you study the different councils of uh, church history, there was always some guy that started out part of Calvary chapel and then, you know, clicked on that internet link or whatever. And he's like, you know, And then he started believing something different about Jesus and it came up at a prayer meeting in the way that he prayed or it came up at the core group in the way that he said or whatever. And as the church leadership tried to steer him in that right direction, he wouldn't have it. And he ended up causing division and he would be placed outside of the church and then eventually would be called a heretic, called to repent of his sin. If he didn't repent all of this, they would go on and and it would cause a hubbub. And so they would have like the Oregon council or the council of Nicaea and they would go over that issue and how the apostles believed it and what the word of God says. And then the church fathers would make their statement of, we believe that this is truth and that what this guy says, whether he's Arian or whoever, you know, he's a false teacher and they would condemn that individual as a heretic at, uh, that council. Uh, so let's go on to say verse 20, that's first John two twenty. but you have an anointing from the Holy one and you know, all things I'm not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. 
who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is an antichrist who denies the father and the son. Whoever denies the son does not have the father either. He who acknowledges the son has the father also. Now let's hop over two chapters to first John four, one. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits, whether they're of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And now remember the the dealing that he was dealing with was Gnosticism. So whatever topic might be an issue in your discussions, this might not be the topic. Okay. But what he was talking about, the topic was people were saying Jesus didn't come in the flesh. And so he would say, you know, know, don't worry about that in that topic. If they say that he's come in the flesh, then, then they're, they're okay. All right. Does that make sense? Because sometimes we use this as the test of like, well, you know, they're living in absolute immorality and they're like into Buddhism and this and that and the other thing. And, but you know, they'll say, yeah, Jesus came in the flesh. And you're like, you're totally a Christian man. It says so in first John. Okay. The dealings here was with Gnosticism. All right. And so, uh, I think we were in verse three, five and a half, some verse yeah, three. Okay. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is already in the world. Okay. All right. So verse 10, let's flip back over and we'll begin to wrap up here. Everyone can breathe again. Like, oh, okay. I had a sweet little chart to show you on the mathematics of the cults, but now use your imaginations. Okay. Addition plus sign. The cults add an extra biblical source of authority by prophet pen or professor. Okay. Might be, um, might be the Buddhist writings and scriptures might be, um, the Joseph Smith's prophecies might be the new world translation that erases out specific Greek tenses to show that Jesus is not God is what they've done there. Okay. So there's some sort of addition. Okay. Uh, some, whether it's their prophet or their, um, writings or their professors, they may have, but they also like subtraction, right? They subtract from the person and work of Jesus Christ, the son of God, They deny his deity and find inadequate his work of redemption. Okay. So some sort of labor you've got to do now to be saved, some sort of works that you've got to do to be saved. Um, and so on and so forth, um, or take away his gracious gift of salvation. Okay. Division. They divide our allegiance from God through Christ alone to others. So all of a sudden there's a prophet that's on the same level as Christ. Okay. And so that divides us. And then finally, multiplication. They multiply requirements for salvation. All advocates some form of works-based salvation. There's also the square root, if you're interested in that one. Just kidding. Okay, let's go to verse 10 of uh, 2 John. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. So 
uh, feel free to do some research on this, you know, but I used to understand this to be like, you know, uh, let's say a Jehovah's Witness comes knocking or a Mormon comes knocking or, you know, whatever. And, you know, we think of this verse and you're like, get off my porch, you know, or no way you're coming inside or something like that, you know. And, and really when you look at the culture of the day as we're trying to understand to interpret this through the rules of interpretation, it's speaking more of to receive them or come into your home was to share in what they believed. It was to refresh their hearts, refresh their souls for their ministry of deception so that they can go on out and further that. Okay. So that's really more the immediate context of that. Um, because now there, there may be some of the best moments of evangelism in those times where they've come to your door. In fact, a few years ago, we were the ones going door to door. Do you remember that? We went through the whole Northridge area and that area north of Peter's road and we, we knocked on doors and we shared the gospel and I went to one of the doors and it was actually a garage door and it was open. There's a guy welding outside and, uh, and I started sharing with him and, and he said, you know, I'm actually LDS. And he's currently the, the bishop of the LDS. He's a friend of mine now. And um, and we begin to share. And he's like, man, normally we're the ones going door to door. I'm like, yeah, I tricked you. You know, cut you off guard. Answer some of these questions. No, that wasn't how it was at all. But I was able to just love him in conversation. And he said probably three times, I can't believe you're being loving toward me as we talk. I, I don't think I've ever experienced this before. And we, and I got to share the gospel with him. I got to challenge him, go back to the Bible and challenge him at, at what kind of the goals of the faith, you know, do to the glory of God and the glory of Christ and, and atonement, all of those things. And, um, and, and there's, there's testimonies of Mormon missionaries out on their mission. And there's a pastor who welcomes them actually come into the church. Let's talk. I'm going to give you 15 minutes to just talk your heart out. Just talk, talk, just talk. Let me add. Why would convince me? All right. Talk, 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 talk. Okay. Now I'm, I, I get 15 minutes. I'm going to share the gospel. I'm going to share the meta narrative of scripture. I'm going to share the, the attributes of God, the character of God. I'm going to share about redemption and the plan of salvation. I'm going to share about eschatology. I'm going to share about the chief end of man. I'm going to share about all of these things and, and go home and pray about these things. Okay. And the story is that, uh, these men listened to this pastor and they were mad at him for challenging their faith. But he said, go back and read the gospel of John. They went back and read the gospel of John. In this case, one of those missionaries got saved, happened into a coffee shop where some dudes were playing on a band and he's a musician. And he finds out these are all Mormons that got saved on their mission. They got born again on their mission and they have a band now where they travel around and they wear their little elder badge and they got their tie on and they preach the gospel and they, um, you know, I don't think they have their badge on. They do wear a tie. It's like, 